Thanks, Trevor, for leading us in the time of prayer. Well, we are continuing this morning in our series in Galatians, and we'll do so all summer long. Uh, last week, uh, if you were here, I said that I was going to take two weeks, last week and this week, to focus on the cross of Jesus in particular. Last week, we looked at verses 1 to 5 of Galatians chapter 3, and this week, we're going to look at verses 10 through 14 of Galatians chapter 3. So if you are able, as is our custom, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. This is God's Word to us this morning. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous, righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Isaiah 40 tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. I'm going to pray for us one more time. God, thank you that you are with us. You've given us uh, your word, your revealed self to us in these scriptures, and we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would speak to our spirits. You would illumine our minds, inflame our hearts, change the way we live, because you have spoken. Would you remove me, the preacher, so that Christ might be exalted May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you in this time. And may all that comes from me fall to the ground. All that is of you, may it land. And may it take deep root in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So two weeks on the cross, last week and this week. The cross is the single most visible and recognizable symbol in human history. If anyone would dispute that. The cross... It's everywhere. We see it on walls, we see it on jewelry, we see it tattooed. But what does the cross mean? In the 4th century, the emperor of Rome, Constantine, converted to Christianity. And in doing so, Constantine declared that Western civilization was to be a Christian civilization. Constantine was going into battle one day, and he prayed to God, and he looked up, and above the noonday sun... He saw a cross with these instructions, with this sign, conquer. And from that point on, the, the chi and the rho, the first two letters of the Greek word for Christ, were put on all Roman soldiers' shields as they would battle to conquer. With this sign, conquer. Is that what the symbol of the cross means? And before Jesus, the cross was a gas chamber. It was an electric chair. It was a, a firing squad. It did not mean strength at all or conquest. It didn't mean you had won, but that you had lost. It was a symbol of having been conquered, not conquering. So what does the cross mean? Our passage this morning is one of the most vivid expressions of the cross in the entire Bible. And I want us to look at three things. The necessity of the cross the substance of the cross, and the effect of the cross. The necessity, substance, and effect. Let's look first at the necessity. Paul writes in verse 11, 
Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, to be justified. We've, we've been addressing that for, for most every week since we've been in Galatians. To be justified before God is to be made right before God. And, and that is a central issue of all religions. How are we made right with God? And then Paul in Galatians 3 quotes the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, that the righteous shall live by faith to live by faith, to live with God, to walk with God. This is the other central issue of all religions. To put it succinctly, the central issue of all religions is first, how do we find favor with God? And second, how do we have fellowship with God? And Paul has been arguing this whole letter that we really have two options, two different paths in our attempts to find favor with God and have fellowship with God. It's either by our own works, our obedience to the law, our performance, or it's by faith in Jesus. Paul is saying it's one or the other. You cannot have one foot on the dock of faith in Jesus and one foot in the boat of your own self-salvation efforts of works and performance. For when we understand the cross, it's like the boat begins to pull away from the dock. And you're forced to either put one foot in the boat or one foot, the other foot on the dock. You're not right with God by faith in Jesus and also by your own effort. It's a major problem if we begin to think it's by our works and by our performance. Because look at verse 10. Paul writes, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, and he quotes Deuteronomy, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul is saying what he says in other places of Scripture, places like Romans, that there is no one righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I mean, did you catch verse 10? Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things and do them. There is no grading scale. There's no passing if you're 70% obedient. There are no A students, B students, and C students. If you live, if you base your life on living according to the works of the law, obedience to the law, then you must be perfect. I think if you're honest, you would say no person here is perfect. Now hear me, the problem with the law is not the law. The law is good. The problem with the law is our sin. It's our heart's desire to disobey and rebel. The problem is that the law reveals our sinful nature. Listen to what Phil Riken in his commentary on Galatians writes. He writes, What the Bible says about our human nature is confirmed by human history, which is a sordid tale of war and woe. Our sinful nature is confirmed by our neighbors, by the lies of our co-workers, and the self-centeredness of the people on our street. It is confirmed by, by the petty disagreements within our families and even our churches. But the truth of our sinful nature writes its most compelling proof on our own hearts. Your own guilty conscience ought to be enough to convince you that you are unworthy of God. Do you ever stretch the truth? Do you ever take something that doesn't exactly belong to you? Do you ever speak an unkind word? If so, then God's law condemns you as an accursed liar, thief, and murderer. Riken is saying sin is revealed in each of our individual lives. Fleming Rutledge, who wrote a great work on the crucifixion, writes beautifully about sin 
not being only individual, but also corporate. Now, I've got to be really honest here that the white church in North America has been prone to focus on individual sin to the neglect of corporate sin. I know I have for much of my own Christian life. Listen to what Rutledge writes about corporate sin and how she kind of describes it and she kind of fleshes it out. She says, when we live in an affluent community or society and we focus on our own security and comfort yet coexist with abysmal conditions for migrant farm workers, immigrants, and prisoners, this is a corporate sin problem. Or if a corporation thinks that they're being benevolent by giving to an educational foundation, but at the same time they exploit their workers or lie about their taxes, this is a corporate sin problem. To the chasm between the rich and the poor in our country and in our own city of Durham, it is a sin problem on a large scale. Many of us who are of privilege can confess our sins of anger and pride and lust, and greed, but we neglect the struggles of the poor all around us. See, sin is individual and it's corporate, and we are guilty, brothers and sisters, we are guilty. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. He writes, fallen man and woman is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. They are a rebel who must lay down their arms. Now, I know talking about sin is not very popular, in our culture. We live in a culture that doesn't even like to really talk about guilt, let alone feel guilt. You know, there was a time uh, right after World War II that the author W.H. Auden termed the age of anxiety, that our our culture was quite anxious. And I think anxiety is still very prevalent today, but I don't know if that, that, that term could be what's apt for us today, the age of anxiety. I think our culture today would be more termed the age of no guilt. The age of I'm right if I think I'm right. The age of relativism. I heard someone say this about guilt. said, I agree that people who live with an an inordinate amount of guilt might be pathological. Y'all probably been around people who always feel guilty, right? Who live with an inordinate amount of guilt might be pathological, but I would say people who don't feel any guilt at all are even more pathological. So we cannot understand the cross of Jesus until we understand our sin and our guilt. For our sin and guilt make the cross necessary. Perhaps some of you know the well-known hymn, Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in the be of sin, the double cure. The double cure. Cleanse me of its guilt and its power. The double cure of the cross is to cleanse us of the guilt of sin and the power of sin. Last week, I talked about the power of the cross to free us from the power of sin. This week, I'm talking about the freedom from guilt of sin. The cross was necessary because on the cross, Jesus deals with our guilt. He deals with our sin. Look at verse 13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. In the Old Testament, when someone was cursed for breaking covenant law, they would be hung on a tree. Paul saying Christ hanging on the tree is him becoming a curse. It doesn't say he was cursed, but that he became a curse for us. What does that mean, that Christ became a curse? It means that on the cross, Jesus was the sacrifice 
that Jesus was our sacrifice, which leads to point number two, the substance of the cross. To understand the substance of the cross, we must understand what it means that Jesus was our sacrifice. Think about the way we use the word sacrifice today. Tonight, some of us are going to a Durham Bulls baseball game, right? Hopefully it'll be good weather, we'll be in the right field pavilion. Maybe a baseball player will lay down a sacrifice bunt, which means that that player is giving up their hit in order to advance the base runner. That's how we use it. Think about how we use it for soldiers in battle. The soldier made the ultimate sacrifice for their country, dying in war to secure our freedom. We use it in chess. A chess player might sacrifice their pawn in order to gain advantage for their king or their queen. Professionals, men and women, have said, I don't want to get married, I don't want to have children because I would have to sacrifice my career. Parents, we say, sacrifice their time, their days, their years for the sake of their children. To sacrifice means two things. The first is that something of value is relinquished. Something of value is relinquished. The second is that the purpose is to gain a greater good. Jesus, on the cross, gave up his earthly life in a physical death. We need not pass over the pain of his execution, the torture, the humiliation, the public shaming that came to him as he hung on that tree. Jesus gave up his earthly life. He relinquished his body and his blood, doing so to deliver us from the curse, from God's just wrath and punishment for our sin. Now, the other thing that was of great value, perhaps bigger than Jesus' physical life that was relinquished on the cross, was Jesus relinquishing his God-belovedness. His God-belovedness. Deuteronomy 21 talks about being cursed and hanging on a tree as a sign of divine rejection. Jesus becoming a curse is him becoming divinely rejected by his Father. Jesus hanging on the cross was him relinquishing his God-belovedness. The perfect love between the Father and the Son from all eternity. He was becoming God-forsaken, a curse for us. That's why Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The love between the Father and the Son so eternally immense that I don't know if we can fully, fully understand it. We have some, some type of understanding because when a friend rejects you, it hurts. When a parent rejects you, it hurts a little more. A child rejects you, it hurts. A spouse rejects you, it hurts maybe the most. Now imagine the love between Father, Son, and Spirit from all eternity and the Son being rejected by His Father pain and the hurt. The center of Christianity is the cross. And the cross is about a God-damned Messiah. The gospel of God's grace to a people under a curse because of our law-breaking is the gift of a God-damned Messiah. The once and for all final sacrifice. Second thing being a sacrifice, sacrifice means it's there is a 
purpose behind the sacrifice, to gain something greater. Now, the greatest gain of the cross is the glory of God. The glory that God gains in Him rescuing us from the curse. But I don't know about you, and as true as God's glory is, and we talk about existing for the glory of God in, in Durham, sometimes I have, a, I have a small vision and a small view of God, and I'm not always moved by the glory of God. And that's on me, that's on us for not having a vision large enough beyond ourselves. But I think God's gracious enough to, to kind of push it a little personal with us. Look at the end of verse 13. It talks about the gain of the cross, that Jesus became a curse for us, therefore to the glory of God. He endured the cross ultimately for the glory of God, but for us, for you, and for me. Can you say that? Jesus endured the cross for me. You can whisper it. Jesus endured the cross for me. He endured the cross for you and for me, for us. Jesus not only took the punishment of sin by dying on the cross, He lived the life that we should have lived but couldn't. He's the only perfect one in this room right now. Perfectly obedient to the law. And by faith in Jesus, we receive the gift of both. His death on our behalf and His life lived on our behalf. By faith in Jesus and his death on the cross, we're not only forgiven of our sin, we are granted the righteousness of Jesus. We are justified, made right with God. See, to be justified is not just forgiven, it is the complete righteousness, the complete favor of God upon us because of what he has done for us. You see, in being the sacrifice, Jesus gains a redeemed people. Jesus gains a righteous people. First Peter calls us a holy nation, a people of his own possession, a people that should declare his praise, a people that glorify the Father. My last point is an attempt to apply the cross to our lives. I'm not just talking about the necessity and the substance, but the effect of the cross. Faith in Jesus and his death on the cross for us is how we are made right with God. It's how we stand before God knowing that He takes great delight in us. The cross was necessary to deal with our guilt and sin. The substance of the cross is that Jesus became a curse, took our punishment, was our sacrifice so we could be made right. So that then He gives us, Jesus gives us a new identity. Not just forgiven, but righteous and loved and secure and a son, and a daughter in the family of God. Our new identity in and through the cross of Jesus sets us free. It should set us free. Let me try to apply this in a few ways. Apply this with pressure that we all feel. The pressure to live and, and be what we think we should be. If salvation just says that Jesus received our punishment, and all that we get is forgiveness of sins, and, and we don't also get his righteousness, then the pressure is still on us to live by the law. And every time you blow it, and every time you mess up, you'll feel the need to rededicate your life. To rededicate your life. I don't know about you, but I remember when I became a Christian at 15, 
Man, I was rededicating my life like every week. I was going down every week. I rededicate. I messed up that week. I'm rededicating my life. There's nowhere in the Bible that it talks about rededicating your life to God. That's living by works of the law. Living by my own performance is what I was doing when I was a teenager and can still do even as a pastor. You'll put yourself on probation, hoping you won't fall again, and you'll live with this constant pressure you better be good. And if you aren't good, you're going to fall out of relationship with God. And people who live like this feel in and out of favor, in and out of fellowship with God, constantly living, unsure of their standing before God. And the gospel of Jesus Christ on the cross declares us not only forgiven, but righteousness granted to us, righteous before Him. And the pressure is off. The pressure is off when we believe this. Second way I'll apply it, think about suffering. If we fail to believe that God looks at us as we believe in Christ, and God sees us and says, in you I'm well pleased. If we fail to believe that, when suffering comes our way, and it will, we've heard about it this morning, we'll wonder, God, are you mad at me? We'll get mad at God. Maybe we'll question God. I don't even know if I'm, if I'm a Christian. But if we believe the cross and Jesus is dying for us, we will know that suffering has purpose. It's not a payment for our sin. God has purpose behind it. If we can trust God's heart shown to us on the cross, we'll be able to have courage in the midst of suffering, even though we don't always understand it. Third way I'll apply it is discouragement, to be discouraged. If salvation is by the works of the law, when you get discouraged, and we all will, you'll begin to examine your life and you'll say things like, I just need to do more of this. I just need to try a little bit harder. And it will only drive you to more discouragement because you cannot do enough. And if we fail to see the cost of the cross and we treat God's favor and God's fellowship as easy and cheap, when discouragement comes our way, you'll examine your life and say, forget this guilt. I need to go love myself, however, however it make, makes me feel, to feel loved. I'm going to go do that. But the cross leads us to examine ourselves and say in our discouragement, something other than Jesus, something other than the cross, are my identity. Lord, help me believe my true identity. Relationships. Apply this to relationships. If salvation is by the works of the law, You'll always relate to other people with a sense of insecurity. And you'll be traumatized by criticism. You'll blame others for relationship difficulty. If salvation is about you and not about the cost of Christ on the cross, you'll also use relationships and people for your own ends. You'll relate to people as long as it costs you nothing. But the, cost, the, the cross frees us up. It allows us to accept criticism. Because our identity is in Christ and what He's done on our behalf. And it allows you to stay in relationships even when they are hard. And they're not giving you what you want because it's not the relationship that completes us, it's Christ who completes us. And lastly, apply it to spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines, growing in the gospel as a Christian, are great things. Things like reading the Bible, prayer, solitude, fellowship with others. The big thing about spiritual disciplines is how we go about them. If salvation is by works of the law, 
You'll go about spiritual discipline because you fear God's punishment. You'll read your Bible every morning. You'll pray, and when you don't, you'll flip into the kind of, I'm on probation, I blew it, I better, I better rededicate myself to reading God's Word every day for the next two months, kind of a posture. If you treat the cross as cheap, you'll say things like, well, I'm just going to, I'll, I'll figure out what's right for me in the Christian life. Even though God tells us how we can be exposed to Him and His grace and His mercy, I'm going to figure it out on my own. The cross allows us to not just say no, and it allows us to not just let ourselves go, but that within ourselves, we cannot be perfect. Therefore, we need to expose ourselves to the means of God's grace that He has given us to be renewed in our identity as being right before God and loved before God and secured with God. It has so many impacts for us, effects in our lives. One of my favorite movies of all times is Shawshank Redemption. If you haven't seen it, you need to watch it. I'm tempted to use it like every Sunday because it's so good as an illustration. But I'm like, they would get so bored if I use Shawshank every Sunday. But there is a line by Morgan Freeman that hits me every time. And it resonates with me so deeply. Red, Morgan Freeman, he says, I'm tired of being afraid all the time. I'm tired of being afraid all the time. Aren't you tired of being afraid all the time? I am. And the cross cures us of guilt and of our sin, and it frees us to boast in who we are in Him. The essence of sin is our trying to be God. The essence of the cross and our salvation is that the God-man was rejected so that we are forever accepted and secured before Him. A God-damned Messiah. For the sake of a blood-bought people, the rejected son for a chosen family. I don't know a love greater than this. What wondrous love is this? That the cross is how we have favor and have fellowship with our God. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would, you would by your goodness to us and grace to us, Help us to see the outstretched arms of Jesus on a cross that we all know, we've all read about, we've all heard about. Sometimes it just feels like a past event to us. But it is the central thing to this faith of Christianity, to finding favor with you and to having fellowship with you. And so God, keep us centered upon the cross of the Lord Jesus when we err, when we're away from, when we don't understand, pull us back to who we are in you because of what Christ has done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.